Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. All right. Hello, everyone out there, and welcome to, I guess, what we're going to call Season 2 of D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thank you very much for sticking around here so long and getting all the way through the Actus Trials with me, Part 1 of the Spoken Books Uprising. And today, we continue our journey together as we begin reading Part 2 of the Spoken Books Uprising, which is called Declaimer's Discovery. Um, But first, uh, just a quick announcement, one that I am pretty excited about and that I uh, talked about at the end of last week's episode, but I have started a Patreon account. I had some folks asking if there was a way to support me and the podcast in a way other than purchasing books, and um, this is one possible way for you to do that. As I said last week, the podcast is remaining 100% free of charge, so uh, you do not have to do anything in order to continue listening as you have been each week. But if you are interested in uh, giving me some extra support and uh, getting some nice perks to go along with that, consider signing up for my Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash dtkane. There are three levels of support you can sign up for. Um... Named, of course, after titles in the Spoken Books Uprising. The first level is the Keeper level, which will be $3.99 per month. And basically under that, you're going to get a copy of every ebook that I have ever written as of the date you sign up. And then you'll also be signed up to, to receive a free copy of each new ebook that I release uh, after the date you sign up for as long as you're a patron. Um, you will also get recognition in my weekly email newsletter. Um, and maybe the most attractive to some of you, I don't know, but, uh, there will also be an exclusive patrons only monthly podcast episode, which I will be starting here probably in a, in a few months. Um, but that's something for you to look forward to as well. If you decide to, to join the Patreon, the second level will be the orator level, which is nine ninety nine per month. You'll get all of those perks I just mentioned in the keeper level, including the, uh, the exclusive monthly podcast episode. Uh, You will also receive copies of all the physical books that I have released as of the date that you join. Um, You know, those will, uh, you know, those will be shipping over the course of 90 days after you sign up, just so you get that. You'll also, um, as an orator, you will receive a free copy of each physical book I release after the date you sign up. And you will also receive email recognition in my weekly email newsletter and Orators will also be noted in the acknowledgments section of each book that I release. So if you'd like to see your name in print, uh, consider signing up at the orator level. And finally, um, if you are uh, truly a super fan out there, and like I said last week, I don't know, I am not arrogant enough to think that I actually have true super fans out there, but I've had several people be pretty enthusiastic about the Spoken Books Uprising, so maybe there are a couple out there. Uh, you can join at the declaimer level, as we know declaimers are quite rare. Um, so this is the highest tier of membership, fourteen ninety nine a month. You get all of the perks of the keeper and orator levels, including the monthly extra podcast episode, and um, you also get a couple of pretty interesting perks here. Uh, one, you get this unique opportunity to participate in my drafting process. Uh, you'll get live access to my drafts through a shared Google Doc. Um, that'll be read-only. You won't be able to edit my work, but I think I will leave comments on, so uh, you can kind of watch me draft in real time and, and leave me some comments, and you can kind of see stories get shaped from the beginning. Um, you will also get one free personal message in my newsletter or podcast per quarter, so if you'd like me to, I don't know, give you a birthday shout-out on the show or in the newsletter or... I don't know if you have a story you'd like me to share with 
the listeners, or even if you are a writer like me, I will uh, give you a quick plug on the podcast or in the newsletter. Uh, you know, obviously these messages are within reason. I'm not going to post anything that I deem inappropriate, but within reason you'll get, you know, uh, you know, one, the option to have one of those messages per quarter. Uh, so for each year, um, you'll also get recognition in the weekly email newsletter and in my acknowledgments sections of future books. And I will also read your name aloud at the end of each podcast episode. Um, so that's all. If you're interested, patreon.com slash dtkane. And if you are looking to support me, but, uh, you know, maybe the extra monetary support just isn't in the cards for you right now, um, a couple easy ways you can help support me. Uh, leave a review of The Actus Trials and any other of the spoken books uh, you have read on Amazon or wherever else you buy books. Um, also, Goodreads is a good place to leave reviews. Those Those reviews really... Help me out. The more reviews my books have, the more attention uh, they garner from both the retailers and, you know, other other folks that are looking for books to feature. So that's great. And also consider leaving a review of the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Okay, uh, personal plugging is over here. So let's get into Declaimer's Discovery. Declaimer's Discovery, Part 2 of The Spoken Books Uprising, by D.T. Kane. Prologue Reading books can get you killed, Stefan, said Duke Joseph Galfet. Stefan humphed from where he stood, looking over the Duke's shoulder. He continued staring at the page Joseph had set out before him on his writing desk. And permitting me to teach you to scribe can get you killed, my good duke. Joseph's shoulders stiffened. Don't take such a tone with me. I have kept your secret, and this is how you speak to me? Stefan sighed, stepping back. A delicate game he played, and sometimes he forgot the role he'd assumed. My humblest apologies, Duke Galfet. Stefan gave what he considered an exaggerated bow, though Joseph would likely deem it merely sufficient. As Stefan swept his arm downward, his miento proxitori chimed like tiny bells. They were two sets of five rings, one for each finger, the rings connected by fine chain links. No one had ever bothered to translate their name out of the old tongue, likely because he was the only person in oration who possessed a set of them. Joseph glanced over his shoulder, a sour set to his plump lips. He hadn't succumbed to the sloth or gluttony like some of the other older readers Stefan had encountered, but he still needed to rest after ascending the stairs that led to his chambers here at the top of Galfet Library. Don't patronize me, Stefan. I know you think yourself above me, though scribes only know where you acquired such a notion. Maybe it's those gaudy robes you wear. I know we like our bright colors here in fortune, but really, you take it too far. But if you truly can teach me to pen a new spoken book, well, well, I'll accept nearly any degree of arrogance toward me in private, so long as you act the docile servant in public. Yes, my duke. <laughs> If you're not careful, you'll be giving my speakers ideas. Bad enough you convinced me to propose legislation to give them a day of rest each week. Soon they'll be asking for wages if I'm not careful. Many of the other dukes are already whispering that I've grown soft in my old age. Not soft, my duke. You're just a realist. Men can only take so much before they begin to resist. Joseph snorted derisively. Don't quote Scrifnick rhetoric to me. The tale of Devonstair the Steadfast and his seven trials might be a famous one, but I've no wish to endure even a single trial just to help a handful of slaves. Sometimes stories hold more truth than reality, Stefan replied, permitting just a hint of amusement into his tone. 
That tongue of yours is going to get you in trouble, Stefan. Yes, my... Stefan cut off abruptly as the hair on his arms rose, a dread chill washing over his entire body. A moment later, a thump came from outside the door to the Duke's chambers. "'Oh, what now?' Joseph asked. "'I thought I left orders not to be disturbed. "'Stefan, do go and tell whoever that is to go away.' "'Stefan schooled his face back to calm, "'though an anxious tension in his shoulders remained. "'There was only one thing that sensation could mean. "'Of course, my Duke.' "'He strode out of the study.' shutting the door behind him and stepping into the spacious living room that doubled as an entry hall to the duke's quarters. It was furnished in dark wood with jade inlays. Plants adorned the nearby tabletops, and the room even had a small fountain burbling softly in the darkness. The sun had long since set, and most of the room's drapes were drawn, leaving just a thin sliver of moonlight creeping across the floor. A mirrored stand lamp provided the only other light in the room, casting looming shadows about the space. Stefan approached the main entry door. He took a deep breath and prepared to draw power from the flames dancing in the lamp. Then he threw the door open. The first thing he noticed was the smell an aroma like the aftermath of lightning having struck a steel rod, a sort of alkaline bitterness that he could taste as much as smell. Its source quickly became apparent. Duke Joseph's massive guard, what did they call them? Harbors? A broad, muscle-bound man with a scar across the bridge of his nose was slumped against the wall opposite the door. His mouth was open in a silent howl, streaks of black running from his lips and up the sides of his face. His skin had shriveled like a dried prune, and one of his eyes appeared to have been burned away, a dark lump of carbon all that remained in the socket. "'Oh, it's only you, Stefan,' said a relieved voice. Its owner was a dark-skinned man with a shaved head, he wore a black shirt and pants, and his short hair made apparent the dragon branded on his forehead. As the speaker stepped into the doorframe, Stefan scowled at a spoken book bound in black leather tucked under his arm. Two other men appeared behind the first, one branded similarly to the man who'd spoken, the other wearing a narrow-brimmed hat with the scales of an influencer crudely stitched onto the band. "'Bookman, what do you think you're doing?' Stefan asked, trying to mask the relief in his tone with annoyance. Just a fool casting a spell, not nearly as bad as what Stefan had feared he'd find upon opening the door, though it was a serious problem in its own right. "'It's starting, Stefan! It's starting!' Bookman's tone was almost gleeful. Starting? Don't be a fool. The warrior's plans are weeks, maybe months, away from being ready. And besides, what do you intend? Rise against the one library that's shown any support at all for your cause? The brightness in Bookman's features faded. He glanced to his companions before turning back to Stefan with obstinance in his eyes. Maeve moves too slowly, Stefan and the wicked man who smiles is still evil. We will wait no longer. My brothers and sisters will suffer not another minute under the thumb of these hoarders. Shattered ink files. Stefan rubbed at his temples with the thumb and middle finger of one hand. Here he'd been, attempting to push events as subtly as he could in the right direction, and these bumbling oryxes were going to ruin everything with their impatience. "'Where did you get that book?' he asked, motioning at the dark tome stuffed under Bookman's arm. Bookman glanced at the volume with satisfaction. "'Galfet's youngest boy left it out in the speaking room when he went to dinner, told Gerard here to put it away for him. <laughs> he practically handed us the opportunity to rise up. It was a sign from the scribes, Stefan. We had to take it.' 
Which one of you read the murder? What? What does it? Which one? Stefan dropped the tone of moderate civility he'd forced himself to assume since first coming to Galfet Library. Bookman flinched back, face paling. None denied Stefan when he used that tone. I did. Spells of shadow don't come off most others' tongues quite right, but I've always had a bit of a knack for them. Not that there's often an opportunity for me to speak them. Enough of this, the third man, the one in the hat, said. He had the same shaved head, dark clothing, and speaker's brand as the other two. Do you mean to try and stop us, Stefan, or will you let us in? He drew a long knife from his belt and brandished it as if Stefan should be afraid. Instead, Stefan snorted at the weapon and went back to rubbing his temples. A waste! What a blasted waste this was going to cause! He'd spent months groveling to Joseph at every turn, secretly teaching him to scribe, while also teaching these boys to read, and now they were going to throw their lives away, sure as if they'd slit their own wrists. But Stefan's hands were tied. He'd already meddled far too much in the workings of the true path. And, in all likelihood, Bookman would be following that harbor he'd just killed to the grave before long, so stopping him wasn't worth the effort anyway. These days, very few could read a murder from a spoken book of shadow and survive for long. Not since an act of desperation all those years ago had corrupted the element of shadow. It is not my place to question the direction in which the true path takes you, Stefan said. If this is what you wish, I will not stop you, but know that I think it a fool act, one that will only hamper the other's efforts. Bookman once again looked uncertain for a moment, but his comrades were obviously far less concerned over Stefan's opinion. Don't try to guilt us with your Scrivenic dogma, Gerard said. We'll make our own path, and it starts with butchering Joseph Galfet like the plump pig he is. The resolve returned to Bookman's eyes. He's right, Stefan. Now, out of our way. Stefan sighed. That was the problem with most men. You could only lead them so far before they had to make choices on their own, and most were too nearsighted to make the right ones. I trust you'll remember I tried to stop you while your bodies are being broken on the conservator's torture wheels. Perhaps that had been too harsh, but Stefan was perturbed, and these men really were walking to their deaths. Partly, his anger was over the ruination of his work these men were about to sow. But another part of him lamented over his own effectiveness— for all he'd tried to do for these men, he'd failed them, and they would soon be paying the ultimate price for his shortfall. With that potent mixture of bitterness and guilt swirling in his mind, Stefan didn't bother stepping aside to let the men go about their grim task. Rather, he concentrated his elemental power splitting his mind to focus on each of the five elements that made up all things. A moment later, he vanished from the room. Huh. Hello there, friends. Um, I am coming to you from the future. <laughs> Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to the prologue there of Declaimer's Discovery. I say I'm coming to you from the future because I'm actually recording this little bit of uh, video after the bulk of the analysis section here. Um, and if you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice that I don't have any video this week for the analysis section. My apologies. I was about three minutes away from finishing the recording and the power went out at my house. <laughs> And uh, when I turned my computer back on, there was a file saved that was over a gigabyte, so all the data was there, but it was corrupted. Uh, I eventually got it repaired uh, and managed to at least salvage the audio, but the audio would not sync with the video, um, no matter what I did. And I figured it just wasn't worth my time to try to try to get it to sync up right. So, 
if you're watching on YouTube, I apologize, but you'll just have to stare at the, the thumbnail of my my beautiful face holding up the cover of Declaimer's Discovery there. Um, but otherwise, I hope you enjoy listening to my analysis of the prologue of Declaimer's Discovery, and we'll be back to our regularly scheduled video programming next week. And in the meanwhile, I apparently need to go buy a surge protector with a battery in it so that this does not happen to me again. Hope you enjoy the analysis. All right, welcome back once again to the podcast, everyone. It's Sunday, July 24th, 2022, as I record this, which is episode 28 of the podcast overall, and the first episode of season two, as we already discussed here at the beginning. And um, since we chatted a bit before the episode began today, uh, I'm just going to jump right into our analysis here. So we just read the prologue of Declaimer's Discovery, part two of the Spoken Books Uprising, and hope uh, no one was too disappointed not to see Baz yet. Don't worry, he will uh, he will be with us again next week, but as with the Actus Trials, we start off with a prologue um, and some characters who we aren't too familiar with. Um, so we have Stefan, who is our viewpoint character here from this chapter, and Duke Joseph Galfet. Um, and what are so what are we witnessing here at the very beginning? Well, it looks like this Stefan character is uh, teaching Duke Galfet how to write a new spoken book. So that should uh, jump right off the page at you here because um, we kind of pretty well established back in book one that new spoken books have not been created for quite some time, so um, lots of lots of implications here right off the bat. First of all, so Duke Joseph, um, well, he's a duke, right? So he's pretty powerful, right? He leads a library, um, but if he's learning to write a new spoken book, that means, uh, that means he's a cuss, right? Because uh, we learned you have, to be, you have to be bound to the spoken books in order to be able to write one. So, uh, somehow he has arisen to the top of society here, um, despite apparently being able to both speak and read. So that's interesting. Also interesting that he still doesn't really have too fond a view of other speakers, right? Even, <laughs> even if, uh, you know, it's, it's never spoken aloud here, but even if, um... <clears throat> He, uh, he himself could could very well have been a speaker, uh, apparently. So uh, that's that's interesting. Um, but enough about Duke Joseph. I think the more interesting character here is really Stefan, uh, who is teaching him to read. Again, our perspective character here. You know who who is this guy? There's a bunch of. Um, we learn a bunch about him, uh, and maybe some of our more perceptive listeners out there might be able to ferret out who this guy is, but um, not terribly important right now if, if, if you can't. But what do we have here? So we got the description of him, not much of a physical description, but he's got these rings, right? He's, you know, he wears, you know, five rings on each finger connected by fine lengths uh, of chain. So it's two sets, right? So his hands aren't chained together, but the rings on each of his hands are connected, so kind of like, almost like little webbing in between each of his fingers. Uh, he's got this colorful robe on, apparently. Uh, he can read and write. Uh, or, wow, that's a, that's a typo there. He can, uh, he can read and speak, right? Uh, we do later see him at least getting ready to cast a spell, um, but if he is teaching Duke Joseph how to create a new spoken book, presumably... Stefan is also a cuss, and, you know, Joseph does say, you know, I have, I have kept your secrets, you know, obviously. Uh, you know, what else could Stefan's secret be other than he can both, uh, you know, read and speak and thus draw power from spoken books. Um, though, hold that for a second, the spoken, drawing power from spoken books. Um, like I said, he's teaching a reader how to scribe, uh, so interesting here. Some covert things are going on here in this Galfet library. 
Um, and we see he doesn't exactly seem to know what a harbor is, right? Which is weird. If he's kind of high up in a library here, harbors are pretty commonplace, at least you would think. Um, but, you know, when he does, uh, uh, we'll see in a minute here, he, he goes, you know, he'll go to see what the ruckus was at the door and he sees the harbor outside of it. He's like, you know, his big guard, what do they call them? Uh, you know, so he's not, not entirely sure about that. So that's, that's interesting that he doesn't seem to have the vernacular of society down. Um, so kind of curious here, this, this scene starting, starting off, obviously lots of unanswered questions here. We also, you know, learn, you know, while Duke Joseph seems to be, you know, the kind of the typical arrogant reader here that we grew accustomed to seeing in book one, um, you know, he does, he has also apparently proposed legislation to give speakers a day of rest, which, um, you know, probably, you know, from our point of view out here in the real world, not terribly a, a big deal, you know, they're still slaves, right? But in the world of oration, proposing any rights for speakers is, is kind of a big deal. So he does seem to be somewhat sympathetic to them, even if, uh, even if he's still an arrogant reader, <clears throat> And uh, speaking of that proposed legislation, so where are we? Well, we are somewhere we have yet to go in the spoken books universe, uh, the city of fortune. Uh, that's you know stated explicitly more than once here in the chapter. So Galfet Library is apparently one of the libraries in fortune. Um, <clears throat> and Stefan talks about this role that he has, quote, assumed uh, here in Fortune, and how, uh, you know, he sometimes has uh, lapses, and uh, he seems to assert himself more than he should be based on the role he has assumed, so uh, that raises even more questions about Stefan, you know, is he like a spy um, or something? You know, he's, he seems to imply that maybe he, you know, he's not necessarily supposed to be here, but he's kind of wormed his way in, so just another Another thing to keep keep an eye on <clears throat> there. Um, you know, I like his, his quote here. It seems like maybe Stefan is the one who put this bug in Duke, Duke Joseph's ear um, about the legislation for speakers. Stefan, Stefan says at one point here, men can only take so much before they begin to resist. So it seems Stefan has been counseling the Duke here to give speakers increased <clears throat> rights. So, you know, maybe that plays in. Could maybe maybe Stefan's one of these uh, seekers of transcendence that we learned about uh, in Undertone back in Book One, um, secretly supporting a return of people who uh, are bound to the spoken books to power um, and seeking uh, the identity of the declaimer from the declaimer's transcendence, who is supposed to lead the slaves to freedom. Um, but we certainly don't know that yet, but maybe some evidence here to suggest that. Um, you know, we hear, uh, both Duke Joseph and then later the three speakers that Stefan meets at the door talk about this Scrivnik dogma, which I don't think we explicitly talked about here in the first book, but, um, you know, we know the scribes were worshipped like gods, at least by some people, in book one. So Scrivenic dogma would seem to reference that uh, kind of fervent belief in the teachings of the scribes. You know, we see Stefan uh, reference the true path a couple of times. You know, again, at this point, we don't really know what that means, but, you know, it's capitalized and it's kind of said in tandem with this idea of Scrivenic dogma. So some sort of religious belief, the true the true path. Maybe it's like nirvana uh, or something for people who participate in the, the scribes' uh, religion. Um, you know, okay, some a little more insight into Stefan. Maybe he's a, a religious person here, but again, still not entirely clear. Uh, you know, Stefan also says he's been trying to subtly influence events, but he's already meddled too much. Um, so interesting, there seems to be some sort of constraint working on Stefan here um, as well. So despite, uh, he seems to have done an awful lot here, right? He's teaching a, a teaching a reader how to write new books, a reader who apparently is a cuss. And then he admits later that he was also 
teaching some speakers how to read. So he's been meddling quite a bit, but uh, you know, for whatever reason, he he's hit his limit here um, when he uh, meets these speakers at the door. So why don't we talk about that for a minute? So he's, him and Duke Joseph are kind of interrupted by uh, kind of a, some sort of ruckus at the door. Duke Joseph is uh, perturbed because he told the. Uh, I guess he told everyone in the library not to disturb him, obviously because he's he's doing something illegal here in his chambers. But he sends Stefan to the door to, uh, you know, tell them to go away. And Stefan is actually kind of alarmed here, right? The, the hairs on his arms kind of raise up, and it seems like he's getting ready to, like, for a fight when he goes to uh, to open the door. In fact, um, it says he... He's getting ready to draw elemental power from the torches uh, in the room before he opens the door, which is interesting. Uh, you might have caught this if you were perceptive. This isn't a mistake, but he doesn't have a book with him, at least not that we know of, but he still seems to be preparing to cast a spell. So, uh, you know, could he be a declaimer? Remember, a declaimer we learned back in book one is someone who can cast spells without a book. Um, I suppose that's possible. Stefan also had a book hidden on his person that we just didn't learn about. But, uh, you know, curiouser and curiouser here about this Stefan character. Um, so he throws open uh, the door here, and, you know, whatever Stefan was worried about, uh, it does not appear that it's actually what he finds, because he's relieved when he opens the door. But, uh, the Duke's harbor here is dead when he opens the door, slumped against the wall. Uh, you know, his his skin is kind of, it's kind of turned gray and gone taut over his face, like a, a dried fruit, I believe is the description I use. One of his eyes is kind of just uh, burned, burned away, like it was just burned out of, out of the socket. So, uh, you know, it seems like he's been attacked <clears throat> by someone, and that someone actually turns out to be three someones. There are three speakers uh, at the door who apparently know Stefan. Stefan actually admits in his inner dialogue to having taught them how to read. Um, and the three are led by this speaker called uh, Bookman. And we quickly learn that they are there to kill Duke Joseph, which uh, angers Stefan here. Uh, you know, when they reveal their plan to Stefan, he's like, you know, the, and they reference the warriors' rights, or at least Stefan does. Stefan says the warriors' plans are months away from being ready. Um, well, it would seem these warriors are uh, are rebels who are somehow aligned with these three speakers uh, <clears throat> at the door, and you know, by attacking now, um, these three speakers are messing up some sort of plan that the warriors have to attack. Uh, we see Bookman reference uh, Maeve, um, which is a woman's name, maybe the the warrior's leader, but he says she's moving too slowly, um, that, which is why they are accelerating at least their timeline for an attack here on their library. Um, <clears throat> and Stefan's like, geez, you know, Galfet Library is the one library who is actually somewhat friendly to speakers. You're gonna, you're you're gonna kill Duke. Duke Galfet, because remember, he has proposed this legislation, apparently, that gives speakers at least, you know, some level of rights here, right, to, to rest every every so many days. Uh, and how does Bookman reply? Well, the wicked man who smiles is still evil. Um, I like that. That's a, it's an interesting way to put it, right? And I think it's a good way to summarize really what's been done here. Well, you know, we're not going to give you any rights, and we're still going to treat you crappy, but uh, we'll let you rest every few days. You know, <laughs> uh, and Bookman might have the better of the argument here <clears throat> um, over over Stefan. You know, you know, are there degrees of evil, or once you get to evil, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question, but you know, even if you're a lower degree of evil, you're still evil and probably don't deserve any better treatment than someone who is somehow more evil than you uh or maybe not maybe that's an interesting debate um i don't think that's something i really want to get into right now i my uh my philosophy cardigan <laughs> is in storage for the uh for the summer here so we won't put that on right now but um the wicked man who smiles is still evil 
Um, I like that, like I said. Um, right, so so these speakers, it, it you know, they are gonna they are gonna you know go through with their plan here. <laughs> Whatever Stefan says, it seems. Um, you know, we also get some interesting insight here to maybe. It seems Stefan detected that a shadow spell was being used outside the door. That's why the hairs on his arm uh, rose. Um, and it seemed like maybe he expected someone different to be using shadow than the folks that uh, he ended up finding there, these three speakers. But Stefan does make this reference here. An act of desperation all those years ago corrupted the element of shadow. Um, so... You know, what's he, what's he talking about here? Uh, an act of desperation all those years ago corrupted by the element of shadow. Um, I think instead of discussing this, I'd love to hear your thoughts out there. If you're just uh, following along here on the show, let me know what you think that means. Or uh, if you've already uh, read book two, but now you're just listening to the podcast <coughs> here, uh, I'd love to know what you thought that meant at the time when you were reading it for the first time. Uh, shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com. But Stefan obviously knows something here about the element of shadow that it would seem like some other people maybe don't. And maybe that also explains why uh, the element is considered so dangerous. It's been corrupted somehow. You remember Baz doesn't really want to have anything to do with shadow. At least he didn't back in the first book. And you know, remember how terrible it was when he did cast that one shadow spell, and it also seemed to, you know, make him hear voices in his head, which, incidentally, we learned were the voices of the Dark Ones, uh, so <clears throat> um, maybe slowly getting some insight into what's going on with with the element of shadow and why it's so dangerous. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to these three speakers tell Stefan to either step aside or they're going to make him step aside. Um, maybe we get maybe the sense that if Stefan didn't want to step aside, they wouldn't be able to make him. But again, Stefan says he's already meddled too much, and that's the problem with men, right? You can only teach them so much before they have to make choices on their own, and most make the wrong choices. You know, so he is very frustrated with these three here. It almost seems like he has been taking them under his wing a bit. Now he's like, oh, you are. It's like watching watching your children, uh, you know, <laughs> just try to do something on their own and trip <clears throat> and fall. Except here, Stefan thinks they are going to their deaths here. But again, for whatever reason, this external constraint on him uh, is restraining him from interfering any further. Um... And so he doesn't step aside, right? But it says he just vanishes. Um, what is that? He just vanishes? Um, is this, am I just taking liberties here? Um, you know, a little uh, uh, literary uh, liberty being colorful in the description here. Did he uh, actually vanish? Uh, you know, th this Stefan person is certainly mysterious here, but so... But ultimately, what we have here in the prologue, there appears to be a rebellion in the works of the Speakers in Fortune, which is um, the third city of the Triumvirate, along with Enigma and Erstwhile. Erstwhile is the city uh, that Baz is from. So I think it's safe to assume that this rebellion here is going to be relevant to the rest of the story, since we're setting it up here in the prologue, but we'll have to wait until next week to find that out. Uh, so that's the prologue here of Declaimer's Discovery. Um, <clears throat> and before we wrap up here, I thought it might just be interesting for me to talk for a few minutes about um, the historical inspiration behind the Spoken Books Uprising. I didn't really talk about this all that much in Season 1 because um, there's not too much of this inspiration in the first the first in part one, the Actus Trials, but a lot of the rest of the series I have very loosely, let's be clear here, very loosely uh, based on some of the facts of the Haitian slave revolution, which uh, occurred kind of approximately from 1791 to 1804, and I'm by no means an expert uh, on, on, the, on the Haitian slave revolt, but I have, uh, you know, I've read about it... <coughs> um, a little, and it is kind of recognized as the only successful slave revolt 
uh, in history. So just a couple quick facts here. I'm not going to uh, go on and on about historical stuff. but the So the revolt began in 1791. Uh, and before that, for those of you who don't know, uh, before it was called Haiti, uh, Haiti was called uh, Saint-Domingue. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation there, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Saint-Domingue. Um, and it shares the island of Hispaniola with what is now the Dominican Republic. The island's kind of split in half. Uh, back then, the Dominican Republic was called Santo Domingo. Um, so uh, Santo Domingue was a French possession where Santo Domingo was owned by the Spanish. And um, <clears throat> the main crop there in Haiti was sugarcane, which is uh, pretty labor-intensive to... Uh, farm and harvest, and then there's a kind of an extensive uh, milling process that sugarcane has to go through to actually turn it into sugar. So all of that requires a lot of a lot of hard labor. So that resulted in hundreds of thousands of slaves coming uh, into Haiti in the 1700s to to man all of the sugar plantations. There, I think by 1790, which is right before the revolution began, there were something like 500,000 slaves <coughs> in Haiti compared to only, uh, you know, out of a total population of 550,000. So we're at like 90% of the population was slaves um, <coughs> in Haiti by the time they rebelled uh, in 1791. Um, just a, a few things that kind of inspired some fat some things in the in the book from the from the revolution here uh slaves were marked with brands uh in haiti so we see that here in the spoken books as well the speakers have their brands on their foreheads um <coughs> you know injuries were frequent amongst the slaves uh in haiti uh you know you had to cut down sugarcane with machete or <laughs> machete uh, uh with machetes um, so there was the risk of being cut by those, and sugarcane is quite sharp as well, so um, lots of cuts and infections there on the fields. Uh, also, working long hours and then having to go to the sugarcane mills, which there's lots of like grinding and pressing going on in those, so getting limbs caught uh, in those machines was a common injury for slaves as well. Um, you know, punishments were quite brutal for slaves, um, as they were in lots of other parts of the world as well, but whipping was common, uh, rubbing things like lemon, uh, hot peppers, or salt, ashes, and wounds to make them hurt even more, uh, throwing boiling sugar juice on slaves, some of the common punishments here. So obviously uh, terrible, uh, terrible conditions these slaves <coughs> lived under. And there's also uh, also this I general idea in, lots, in several of the books I've read about just keeping the slaves uneducated to make sure that they didn't get any ideas about rising up. And this is an idea we see in the spoken books uprising as well. You know, the slaves are not even taught to read, and, uh, you know, reading is such a big part of how knowledge is passed on, you know, and it's, it is easier to keep an ignorant, uh, ignorant population submissive than one that, uh, you know, is able to read and educate itself and kind of see what the possibilities beyond the oppressive government uh, are. <clears throat> so that's certainly a theme that I play up uh, in the Spoken Books Uprising that's inspired, at least in part, by some of these terrible conditions that were going on in Haiti uh, at the time. Um, I, think I'll keep <clears throat> I think I'll keep referencing back every now and again to parts of the revolution that uh, influenced the story here. Just a couple quick facts here. Uh, August 1791, that's when the rebellion actually began, and it began at uh, Galifay Plantation. Um, so that's kind of, uh, that's the inspiration for Duke Galfet's name here. I guess it probably should be Galfay if I was sticking to the French pronunciation, but I went with Galfet for, for the book here. Um, and it's interesting, but uh, Galifay Plantation was actually considered one of the nicer plantations to work on for slaves. But, uh, you know, as I kind of referenced, uh, you know, here again, the wicked man who smiles is still evil. So, you know, sure, you're being nice to your slaves, but they're still slaves. So, you know, 
you really got to pass. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you, yeah, you probably you probably shouldn't be getting a pass. You're you're keeping slaves. That's what that's the that's the important thing here. Um, the initial leader of the uprising was a man called uh, Bookman or, or Balkman. I'm not exactly sure how that's pronounced, but he was one of the initial leaders uh, of the uprising. Uh, he kind of oversaw this famous firelight ceremony at a place called uh, Boys Cayman. Again, apologies for the pronunciations here. <clears throat> Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, a uh, late night celebration, uh, where everyone swore an oath, uh, to the, to the rebellion. Um, and interesting too, um, they had a plan. I think the, the insurrection was supposed to begin in September. I guess there was some big political meeting where all of the kind of the elites were going to be distracted by it at the Capitol. And they were planning to have the rebellion start then when everyone was distracted. But, uh, some of the slaves got antsy and acted early, so they had to accelerate their timeline, which seems as kind of like what happened here in the prologue as well. Stefan references this plan of the warriors being months away from being ready, but these speakers here at Galfet Library are impatient. They are they are not going to live under the thumb of their readers any longer. So another little parallel <coughs> there. Um, again, uh, Bookman is the name of the lead speaker here in the prologue, which obviously is a direct reference to the leader of the revolt in August of 1791. And last, uh, we briefly see uh, Stefan reference uh, the conservator's torture wheel, which um, was not a method of torture that I was familiar with before I studied the Haitian Revolution a little, but... uh, Apparently, it's literally just they took like a big wagon wheel and crushed people's bones with it and ran ran them over with it. It was a form of a form of uh, torture uh, that was popular in Haiti. I know it's probably terrible to say any form of torture was popular, but that it was used extensively in Haiti. So we'll uh, be seeing that uh, feature. Uh, throughout the book, we'll see some references to that. So just so you know the original. Uh, inspiration there uh, for that device. Um, okay, I think I think that's enough of a history lesson here for now. Um, if you are curious, uh, some future reading for you. A couple of the books that I read about the revolution enjoyed were uh, Avengers of the New World by uh, Laurent Dubois and Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint d'Overture, who... Um, ultimately became kind of the uh, the face of and the leader of the the rebellion in in Haiti um, after bookman was was killed shortly after the insurrection began um, oh and that black Spartacus is by again sorry for the pronunciation here but uh, Sudhir Hazari Hazari Singh I, I'm sure that's totally off but uh uh, but there you go, Black Spartacus: The Epic Life of Toussaint L'Overture. Um, you can look that. Uh, <clears throat> you can look that up if you are interested in more reading about the Haitian slave revolution. All right. So next week we're going to read chapters one and two. Um, and again, like I said, we'll be back. We'll be back with Baz. Um, what do you make of the sticky situation Baz finds himself in? Uh, how have he and Liana been getting along since we left them uh, at the end of part one? And what do you think the guard wants with Baz and Liana? Um, obviously, you'll find out who the guard is as you read uh, chapters one and two. Um, so that's your homework. And as always, if you don't have time to do your homework, that's okay, because I'll do all the reading for you, as well as answering those questions and many more next week on the show. Uh, I do have a listener question this week. Uh, Jan asked, um, <clears throat> you know, why I chose to independently publish my novels as opposed to going a traditional uh, publishing route. Um, <clears throat> I've not prepared a extended answer to this question, so this is just kind of off the cuff and from the heart here. But I did briefly uh try to engage a literary agent for my first book, Blade Sorrow, several years ago when I was ready to put it out uh, into the world. I guess for those of you who aren't too familiar with the traditional publishing process, you can't really go directly to the big publishing houses 
you need a literary agent to represent you, and that literary agent has contacts at the big publishing houses, and they go and try to sell your book to them, which kind of right off the bat's a little shady, right? Like you can't just you can't just send your book into the people who are actually publishing it. You need this middleman. Um, maybe shadies not the right word, but you can see how that just complicates the process. And I suppose that system arose because they were just getting so much crap coming into the publishing houses, but um, still. So I spent a couple months researching agents and writing letters to them, and you know I wasn't really getting anywhere, and I was like, I could just be writing more books in this time that I'm wasting researching these random people and hoping one of them uh, you know, decides that my book is good enough to be one of the ten this year that they decide to represent. Um, so that was kind of the big one. It just felt like a big game and waste of time. <clears throat> and, you know, you do hear uh, lots of horror stories about the traditional publishing market these days. You know, I know there are obviously plenty of people who have had great success in traditional publishing, uh, you know, and I'm not necessarily anti-traditional publishing, but you do hear about lots of, you know, kind of mid-list, uh, you know, mid-list authors who, you know, they don't have a best, they're, they're fine writers, but they've just never had a bestseller, and they're kind of just like left out to dry by their agents or their traditional publishers, because, and this is a big factor for me too, most traditional publishing houses, uh, when you sign with them, they'll require that you sign all of your rights to your work away to them, so you lose all control over your work, so you know, say someone gives you a deal uh, and you sell all of your rights to them and then the book just doesn't do as well as the publishing house was hoping uh, initially. I mean, they can just stop printing it and, uh, um, you know, basically you just, you're not getting any money from it anymore and they're not making it anymore, but you also don't have the legal right to control it. So you you've, you've kind of just tossed your work into a black hole that you can never get it back from. So that was a big reason you know, I didn't really feel comfortable signing all of my rights away to my work to a traditional publishing house. So that was a um, that was a big thing too. Um, um, okay, coming uh, back to you here. Sorry for the pause in uh, in the audio. And hello there to those listening on YouTube. You'll now see me on the video instead of staring at the thumbnail there. As I said, I lost power for a while. And I'm having to re-record just this last bit of the show. Uh, so I was answering Jan's question about why I chose to independently publish my novels. I uh, was about to give my third and final reason. Uh, the first one was the game of having to try to find a literary agent. Uh, the second one was uh, not wanting to sign my rights away to my work. And the third reason is really just how much easier relatively speaking, it's become to be successful self-publishing um, in the past probably like 10 to 15 years. I think a lot of people, when they hear about someone self-publishing, they have this picture in their mind of someone, you know, ordering like a thousand of their books and, you know, trying to like sell them out of their garage or something. But um, that is, that's not really the way of things these days. Um, you know, as far as physical books go, print on demand is a thing, which means, you know, if if you go onto Amazon right now and order a copy of one of my books in paperback, um, there is not a warehouse somewhere or a DT Kane garage somewhere that's full of my books. Rather, uh, once you uh, complete your order, Amazon just prints a single copy of my book and mails it to you. So that's the, the print-on-demand idea. So that's obviously uh, made it a lot easier for authors. But even more... Even more so is the rise of ebooks. You know, most of my sales come from ebooks, and obviously, you know, you don't need any physical stock at all for ebooks. You just got to upload your file. So, you know, that's made things a lot easier for self published authors. Um, and really, just the, the infrastructure, you know, the distribution. Distribution was the hardest problem, right? And Amazon and Draft to Digital, um, those are the two I primarily use, Kobo as well. They're a bit larger in Canada and some places in Europe, though you can read on Kobo in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, they all, you know, there's a separate author dashboard that I have access to as an, an author on those platforms, and I just upload my books 
uh, to there, and they handle the distribution of the electronic files to their to their users on their their customer facing uh, web stores. So, uh, just the ease of it, and and honestly, the nice thing about self publishing too. Again, you know, I said relatively easy. I you know, it's 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 not easy. You know, it is still a you know, it's a uh, you know, it's a job like like anything else. You know, a job I am passionate about. Um, and frankly, I, I have not even uh, made it in air quotes yet. I'm still working my day job, as we discussed um, last week. But a nice thing about independent publishing too is it's it's really uh, you can make a career potentially out of it without becoming a best-selling author. That's you know one of the problems with traditional publishing is you know you either hit it big and you know you're a bestseller, uh, or you know some I'm, I know some midlist authors are you know successful too they make enough money to make a living out of it but so many authors you know they their first or second book just doesn't do quite as well as they were hoping and then they kind of flounder into irrelevance and if you're just focused on traditional publishing it can be really hard to get back into the game at that point um you know publishers after you haven't after you've had one or two books that kind of had disappointing sales they're not gonna necessarily give you another look or at least it's a lot harder to get them to give you a look Whereas in the self-publishing world, you can never be uh, a bestseller, but if you can just keep pumping out books and you build a small fan base, you know, you know, selling, you know, several thousand books a year, you'd be a failure in traditional publishing. But if you're selling several thousand, uh, several thousand books at, you know, five dollars, five dollars a pop, so I, I guess it's more than several thousand, but even you know. 20,000 books at, at $5 a pop, you know, in the traditional publishing world, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're probably considered a failure because, you know, the traditional publishers have to take their cut and then your agent takes their cut and taxes and everything. You know, you're left with not a whole lot of money in your pocket and neither is anyone else. But if you're, you know, pocketing the vast majority of those, you know, you know, $10,000, you know, 10,000 book sales uh, per year, uh, you can see how you know you you've made you know fifty thousand dollars in revenue anyway. Uh, you know obviously taxes and Amazon takes their cut, but uh, you can see how you can sell at a volume that would be considered a failure in the traditional publishing world. And you know you would certainly not be a bestseller selling ten thousand books a year. But uh, if you're a self publisher, where you know other than paying Amazon their share of the royalties you're pocketing the rest of that money. You can see how you can still have a nice successful career there. So all of that, those three things are really what motivated me to go the independent publishing route. Uh, so Jan, thanks for that question. Um, I will say it's a very, very personal decision for folks. You know, obviously I decided traditional publishing is not for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong avenue for you. I encourage you to, to research the issue uh, extensively before you make a decision one way or the other. And some of it might be genre-specific um, as well, so keep that in mind. And if you have any more questions about it, uh, feel free to shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com, um, especially if you're someone earlier on in your writing career and maybe you're facing this decision. I'd be happy to you know, at least uh, give you a little more detail on how I arrived at my decision. Okay, so that's our listener question this week, and we'll just wrap up with our quote of the week, which um, you can have emailed to you each and every week if you sign up for D.T. Kane's weekly newsletter. Just head on over to dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. Uh, there's also links to that in the backs um, of my books, so you can uh, find the link there as well. Uh, so this week's quote comes from Mark Lawrence in his novel Red Sister. A book is as dangerous as any journey you might take. The person who closes the back cover may not be the same one that opened the front one. Treat them with respect. Again, that's uh, Mark Lawrence uh, from his novel Red Sister. And my little essay this week uh, is as follows. Can knowledge ever be a bad thing? I'd argue no. Knowledge is neither inherently good nor evil. It is the use to which it is put that determines its morality. 
What is unquestionably wrong, however, is restricting one's ability to obtain knowledge. Therein lies a path to evil, for once acquisition of knowledge is restricted, inequity is sure to follow. It is a lack of knowledge, be it through laws, willful blindness, or simple ignorance, that is to blame for much of the world's problems. If we each could just ask a few more questions and read a few more books, how much better off would we all be? Um, and kind of like I referenced earlier when we were talking about the Haitian slave revolution, this idea of uh, knowledge acquisition or restriction of knowledge acquisition is certainly a theme that's touched on again and again in the spoken books uprising. So uh, I liked this quote as I, you know, gave me an opportunity to expound on that idea just a little bit more. All right, and that's it for one of the more stressful episodes of the podcast thus far, largely because of this power outage and me scrambling to recover my files. Um, frankly, with the amount of time I spent doing that, I should have just re-recorded the episode. But um, if you've ever recorded something and then faced the recorded or I guess written something too and then faced the prospect of having to do it all again from scratch. Uh, oh, it just feels terrible. So I'm glad I uh, fixed it mostly. Sorry about the video for those of you watching on YouTube. Um, but we'll be back um, with regular video next week. So until next time, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for DT Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find DT Kane on Facebook at DT Kane Author or Twitter at DT Kane Author or send DT Kane an email at DT Kane at DT Kane.com. See you next week.